Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Welcome to Military Network Radio. Good morning to you. We are delighted to bring you a show today that will take you back 50 years from our last troop withdrawal from Vietnam. And we are, I have to say, I was greatly moved as I read up for this program. We're talking to Brian Wizard today, who was a gunner on a smoke ship. His MOS was 67A1F, a very dangerous beyond the uh, call of duty position. And Brian has a fascinating story that goes from the time he was 18 years old when he was drafted and sent to Vietnam and has lived a very tumultuous life in between after returning to the United States with severe combat stress. However, today he is an award-winning filmmaker, author, musician, sculptor, living literally on the top of a mountain. And we'll let Brian tell his story. I'm joined today by Jason McNamara as co-host. And we are delighted to welcome you, Brian, to Military Network Radio. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Thank you also for getting up at the crack of dawn, because it's three hours earlier where you are, and we are grateful for you to take your time to do this today. I would love to take our listeners right back to the beginning, when you were drafted at the age of 18. Can you take us back? Actually, actually, I wasn't drafted. I had a choice of being drafted, exile myself to a foreign country, go to jail, or join. So I actually okay. joined because it seemed like the best deal. It was the only option that gave me a gun. <laughs> I'm not going to touch that comment. Um, I think the most important thing that I learned as I read your books and was transported back, I could feel a lot of what Jason will probably recognize. As I looked at your pictures, as I listened, as I watched the film, I was taken back to the exuberance of a young 18, 19-year-old and the fact that living on the edge sometimes has appeal and that if you take us back to smoke ships, I'm not sure everyone knows what a smoke ship is. I think it would be helpful so that people understood your role day-to-day as you went, got up in the morning and what you went off and did. So can you take us back to what a smoke ship does? and how very important it is to the safety and well-being of those who you were covering. Well, the smoke ship, its job was to lay a smoke screen between the enemy position and the landing flight of troop-carrying helicopters. Mm-hmm. So its first job was to save lives. And we'd get up early in the morning, crack it on, and we'd go and prepare the ship, and I uh, sat on, me and my crew sat on 50 gallons of fire-retarded oil that was pumped into the exhaust of the turbine, through a, a ring around the turbine, and um, it would create the smoke. So we'd fly out there to be, uh, one crew chief, who's also a gunner, and two gunners, and two pilots, and we'd be in Huey helicopters, and off we'd go. And we go out to define the front line from one step beyond because we were the first helicopter into the area of operation, the AO. 
and um, we'd fly along the tree line if the enemy enemy was in the trees. And you ask any pilot flying the troop carrier, slick helicopters, what was the most scariest time during a combat assault, and they'll tell you that 15 seconds of taking a fast-moving helicopter and stopping it, and landing, mm. and letting the troops So that's when the enemy get the bead on the pilots and the gunners and take their shot. But just before that happened, zoom, we'd come out of nowhere, fly over them, and lay this blinding uh, cloud of petroleum smoke. And they no longer had that opportunity to get a bead on the landing helicopters. If they, if they saw us coming, they, how could you resist not shooting down a smoke ship? Mm-hmm. It would just be too, too much fun. So anyways, that's what the job of the smoke ship was, to um, lay the smoke screen in my um, movie Thunderhawks on the DVD. It explains that fully, shows you actual combat scenes from mm-hmm. the, the combat landing helicopters, troop carriers, and from my smoke ship because I had a gun in one hand and a movie camera in the other. I was amazed at the number of actual you did photography. You had film. You had so much that was done exactly at the place, which is not something that you normally think of with our later wars where they sent in press and, and did pretty much a, a let's watch the war kind of thing. But you did this long before. So you have real photographs that took you right there. It's very, very immediate is what I kept seeing. So I had a crew chief that... um he fell asleep on guard duty and he was getting a uh, Article 15 and he had to come up with a $25 fine. And all he had to sell was a Super 8 movie camera. So I bought it. And I bought some film. Because after all, I saw that I was living the lifestyle that they write books and make movies of. Mm-hmm. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to document it. And from there, I have documented a lot of everything in my life. I'm probably the most documented veteran, combat veteran, and beyond, because in my movie, you see me document from the battlefield to a return to Vietnam 30 years later, and then my combat gear being put in the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. Quite the trek for just a guy. It is, it's remarkable, and I, I think there's huge value in keeping these stories alive and the lessons learned. And as you went through all of this, um, let's go back to, or Jason, unless you have a question, I'm going to have Brian go back to, okay, he's in Vietnam, and you're living the life that you have volunteered for this position. And yes, it's it, an all-volunteer position. You couldn't be assigned to a smoke ship. Right, because, I mean, you're literally looking back at the front line. Yes, there it was behind me. Hold that thought for just a second. I mean, think about that. That is is amazing. One of the things I found interesting when you went through, and Jason, I'm sure you'll relate to this, you talked about you you had to get ready and stay ready and combat. Yeah, my mentor, Harvey Stauber, that was his most frequently said thing whenever it came to, you know, what we're going to do in the LZ and the hot zone, you know, you mm-hmm. just get ready, you stay ready, you know, no matter what, even when we leave. Uh, a hot area, you get ready, you stay ready. And that goes all through my life, because now I live out in the wilderness. 
I get ready, I stay ready. And that we will get to that the part about how it's hard to take it out of that mantra there. Um, I think I should mention for our listeners that Brian has won the air medal with 25 oak leaf clusters and the crew member flight wings. But I, <laughs> one of the things I noted was you mentioned that the best award of all were the enemy flags that you stole. Yes, during the Tet Offensive, the enemy would put their flag up in territory they thought they controlled. I'm 19 years old. You put your flag up, it's mine, baby. I'm taking that flag. And um, we stole 13 of them all together. And in the, uh, the video, you see this guy out there shooting up the flag with an M60 machine gun. And you see me standing on the skid, holding on with one hand to the helicopter, and bending down and ripping the flag off the flagpole. And you see this great big smile on my face. I'm oh, having the time grin. of my life. I am stealing the enemy flag. It might be the last thing I do, but I am way beyond fear. I am totally into the game. That's my flag. I'm taking it. Well, and that became very obvious as you looked at the big grin on your face. It, it was a victorious moment for you. And you had such a purpose and direction, and each day you went out. Yeah, each day we went out to find somebody to um, take down because they were the enemy. It wasn't anything personal about the people. It's just they were trying to kill me. Right. And they were trying to kill everybody else. And in that uh, photo book that you read was that um, the time we went into Cambodia and found that base camp. I mean, that was a good day, too. And the only reason we found the NBA base camp was my colorblindness. Now, talk I a little thought, bit about that, because I found that fascinating. I don't think a lot of people even equate colorblindness with being able to see things that other people can't see. They usually view it the other way around. Well, see, the colors of the camouflage, Right. it didn't work for me. I could look right through it. I saw people with uh, vehicles and convexes and bunkers. I'm telling my pilot, we've got action at 2 o'clock, and he can't see it, so he took turns uh, 2 o'clock to 12, puts the nose down, and he's trying to find what I'm talking about. And I'm getting a little bit nervous because there we are, flying right into the base camp. Hello? (laughs) (laughs) So um, it wasn't until, like, it was, like, almost too late. He found, holy cow, it's the North Vietnamese base camp. And so what made him a great pilot is he just dropped the nose a little bit more and took us right in treetop level over the base camp because had he turned us, they would have had our blind side and Mm-hmm. Could have got the best of us. So we went across the base camp, just firing away, and we got out of there, and then we called in the B-52 bomb strike, and I have a photograph of that base camp being lifted mm-hmm. up 1,500 feet in the air. You know, a the, good day. I can hear it in your voice when you talk about these things. It takes you right back, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I just killed him again. <laughs> it's in, in terms of the adrenaline rush, I think, that is what a lot of vets talk about. The combat gives you the purpose, the direction, the job, and it starts to seem the normal. It's calm and almost comforting because you know exactly what you're doing. And we're coming up on a break, but you still have some time. Can you talk about how when you, during the last days, when you were coming home, what were you thinking of when you were coming back to the States that you thought your experience would be like? Well, 
gone home before me, uh-huh. and they uh-huh. came back because they did not like being back in what we called the world. Uh-huh. And it was like, what are you doing back here? They go, you don't want to go back home, man. It's just not where you want to be. And so it was always that thought of, really? I can't believe it. And then you come home and you find out that it really isn't where I want to be. But it just doesn't fit because my situational awareness was peaked out and no one else could see what I was seeing. Brian, I'm sorry to break in. We're going on a break. We'll be right back. years ago, some fishermen off the coast of Italy discovered some pottery along with fish in their nets. Divers were called out and discovered an ancient Roman ship whose galley, or caboose, a nautical term for kitchen, was extremely intact. Some of the food uncovered on board was pickled fish, wine, oil, and grain used to make the ship's biscuits, otherwise known as dandy funks. It is thought the 2,000-year-old boat was probably on its way to Spain when it sunk and was covered by layers of mud, baggy wrinkles and all. Baggy wrinkles are another name for the ship's ropes. The mud protected the ship from wear, explaining why the leftover food on board was still in such good condition. We land lovers may not be familiar with leftovers on the sea, but we are familiar with leftovers in our kitchen. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature. And happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion with Brian Wizard, Vietnam veteran and a full expressive artist writing art, sculpture, music um, as part of a healing from combat stress. Brian, I know that Jason wants to ask you questions. First, I'll lead us in with um, talk to us about combat stress. Okay, a lot of people, VA and everybody, they call it post-traumatic stress disorder, but that's different than combat stress. Post-traumatic stress disorder comes when you have a traumatic incident. It could be an accident, a mugging, a home invasion, something weird out of your normal life. It happens, and it's traumatic. And then combat stress is something that comes to you through sustained combat, and that's what people who are in combat for a long period of time, there's actually mental changes to the brain 
that um, allow you to overcome the fear because the fear becomes normal. And your situational awareness grows to a point where it becomes normal. And then you come back to a place where all that isn't normal and you seem abnormal. So your abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is really kind of normal. Mm-hmm. Jason? Yes. <laughs> all right, so... Um, and I, I'm, I'm dialing in here, so I'm a little bit behind on things, so I apologize. But um, So I have a question about how this was for you, obviously being um, having 25 clusters is pretty impressive. Um, seeing the times are, are very different than, um, than say, modern warfare. As a, as a young man going to the combat, what was sort of the most profound things for you as you were starting to experience some of these things? I mean, when you talk to me about, like, capturing the enemy flag and such, that, um, you know, that's uh, <laughs> my immediate thought was to think about um, modern warfare video games and how they've sort of taken your story, basically, and translate that into real-world video games for, you know, millions of kids to play capture the enemy flag but you're really living this stuff and having exposure, you know, at a young age for that matter, um, had to be profound in so many ways. Could you just share with us some of the, some of the things that you were thinking about? Well, you understand, I grew up playing Army. I grew up sure, playing Capture sure. the Flag. So suddenly, all of a sudden, I'm in a real military situation. It's no longer game. Those are real bullets they're shooting at me. Those are real mortars, real rockets. That's a real helicopter fall out of the sky at any second. And now I'm in there with an enemy that wants to kill me and has a right to kill me because we're enemies. And that was profound in understanding that I, I made the transition from game to real life, real warfare. And there I was in a very prestigious position, gunner on the company smoke ship. Smoke ships are few and far between. And being that it was a beyond the call of duty. Um, and you couldn't just say, okay, I want to fly it. You had to be accepted by the crew. You know, that was, wow, I was accepted to be, you know, one of the best. That's amazing. So I grew exponentially from the experience of being an 18-year-old kid when I got there, a 19-year-old man by the time I left with accomplishments that um, I could see. You know, it wasn't the award medals and stuff that I could see. It was the experience that I knew I just lived an amazing thing. And there I was, taking notes, writing a journal, taking 35-millimeter uh, photographs, shooting the Super 8 movie um, camera, capturing all this. And people asked me, why are you doing all that? I said, because one day, boys, we're going to be in a book, we're going to be on the big screen. And that has all come true. So the profound experience um, I have kept alive and keeping the smoke ship story alive I'm the only one doing it and now you can go to the Smithsonian you want to talk profound my gear is in the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum so I've kept what happened 50 years ago alive and made something of it not that many people actually know about it because I wrote books <laughs> you know, who reads books. <laughs> so anyways, but Brian, yeah. you, you're right. Smoke ships, I had never heard of a smoke ship until I read it. And then I do remember seeing photographs about smoke ships. But in those days, 
the war didn't come to your television screen like it can now, which does sometimes, Jason, look like a giant video game. So when you came back to the United States, were you like the men you talked about who said, uh, I don't know how to be back in the world? Talk to us about when you returned. Well, I left at 18. I came back at 19. I went through the profound experience of combat. And the people that I grew up with didn't know that. So they didn't understand me. They didn't like me. My mother said, my son never came back. Mm. You know, so you get all these people saying that you're not you. Going, okay, I think I'm me. But when I came back, I was too irresponsible in the eyes of the government to have a drink to vote for who sent me to war. And I was saying, wait a second. The guys that are running the show haven't even gone to war. And I can't vote for the people I want to send me to war. You know, I can't have a drink. They've been feeding me alcohol for a year. And I can't have a drink now because I'm back in the United States of America. What's with that? You know, so that was pretty uh, shocking. And then when your people don't understand you, and finally your mother says, it's time for you to leave. Okay. Got it over. I, I don't even know where to go from there. Um, it, you have gotten back, but you're starting to experience the things that you end up writing about, which you have a series of books, and they they vary from permission to kill to the end, which is permission to live. And I think the journey between there is so fascinating for you because you try to fit in. And so as you left and went to try and find work, um, friends, etc. What happened next? Well, I couldn't get a job because no one would hire me because I didn't have a home because I was homeless and I couldn't be having a home because I couldn't sit still. So I was always on the move, which was good for me. I loved it. I had an adventure. And um, it just never seemed logical for me to settle in and take a job where... Everybody else around was different than me because most people didn't go to war and mm-hmm. they didn't understand me. And I was too uh, volatile for them. And it would be better to not hang out with the people if they were going to get hurt. So to protect them, I stayed away. I've always lived in lawless places. I was always turned out to be the law. I'd live on isolated beaches in Northern California or in other countries. You know, and mountaintops, in the forest, in vans, you know, driving around, slipping in little dark holes and crevices where I could park for the night. And that's just living outside of society because it was the safest place for me and for all the other people. For everyone is what you're saying. So at any point, did you... Well, it makes sense. It does make sense. At any point, did you feel as though you could re-enter? I mean, was there any desire to come back and re-enter, or did it just continually feel uh, more isolated and more alienating to you? Well, when uh, the guys came back and told me they didn't like it, they were right. It was just Mm -hmm. really hard to merge. It was hard to get in here. And it was okay, because I didn't want to really... I didn't really want to have a job that 
I worked 40 hours to make somebody else rich, and I got a few bucks on the side to pay for my rent and pay for my car and pay for my gas so I could go to work again. I didn't see that. I could have a life out there in the wilderness, and that was more fun. And that was still on the edge. See, I never wanted to come down from the edge. Mm-hmm. That's where life is. That's where life means something. When you have your life on the line, you have a life. And I can just show you the people today that don't have a life. And what are they? They're overweight and kind of stupid. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, at any point, did you recognize that this wasn't normal and that you could get help or wanted help? Oh, yeah. Well, we got to remember that the Vietnam War was a police action until 1988 when Congress said, oh, yeah, that was a war. And um, mm-hmm. combat stress was never actually uh, defined, and it was called PTSD and wasn't even recognized till the late 80s as a uh, disability. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they put it as a disability is actually kind of wrong in the sense that it's more along the lines of an enhancement. I always considered myself enhanced by combat, not disabled by it. But because of my enhancement, I couldn't fit into society. Like I took a job once, they told me to dig a ditch. I dug the ditch. They came back, they asked me what I did, and I said, I dug a ditch. They said, it's a three-day job. Oh, yeah, what's your point? So I cost them money because I did it in a day. I said, well, that's not how I work. You know, you give me an operation to do, I do it, I move on. I can't work with that. Well, it wasn't making sense. I think you're mimicking some, not mimicking, you're mirroring some of the uh, same comments that you hear sometimes from those returning from the more recent conflicts. And there doesn't seem to be as much purpose. And in our now all-volunteer force, you still have such a small percentage of the country participating. And what you're talking about seems to span this whole 50-year period and does not appear to have changed that much other than it is, as you say, recognized that uh, PTSD, combat stress, um, while being somewhat different, and I, I know how you defined it before, but it does seem as though they do at least recognize those things. It doesn't mean that the system is any less cumbersome or easy to get through, but the thing that struck me as well and and in recent vets as well is that you get a lot of training to go in sometimes we need training to come out and come back into the world as you put it not only training but recognition that i'm not the 18 19 year old boy anymore even though i you know my age is but my experience isn't you know i'm way beyond that I'm a mature man worthy to take on big responsibilities to include drinking and voting. But they wouldn't allow it happen. I was still the boy. So that doesn't really work. You know, um, I didn't want to be treated like a boy. But I wasn't. And so that was something to uh, keep in mind. Brian, Otherwise, we'll, yes. another quick break, and then we'll come right back. Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages.
Listen, something is brewing. The beautiful business evolution is coming. The way we do business is about to change for the better forever. This is real business at its very best. On Beautiful Business Radio, you will learn what it means to truly prosper, how to nourish yourself and your business, how to earn what you deserve and make a difference in the world. The tide is rising. The change is here. Discover a new way to live, love, and partner with yourself and your business on Philippa Rollins Presents Beautiful Business Radio, where you matter and your business thrives every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time, only here on the WooHoo Radio Network. engaging in small talk with prospective clients before business negotiations is a good idea? A new study from Nova Consulting Group suggests that it all depends on whether you are male or female. The study found that a little chatter by female professionals before a meeting will generally produce a positive image, but not always positive results. However, male professionals who begin negotiations with a little small talk usually glean favorable returns. This is because there is a preconception that women are already expected to be more communicative than men. And when a man makes small talk, he is perceived as friendlier and likable. But beware that babblery or gossip will only get you into trouble. Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're here with Brian Wizard, continuing our conversation about the story of one Vietnam vet and how he came back. And we'll go next into, Brian, when you came back to the States, it wasn't fitting very well. You wrote your first of, what is it, 10 books at this point? The first three that are the ones I'm thinking of, The Smoke Ships Leading the Way and um, Onward. When you found you weren't fitting into the United States, you moved to Australia. Talk about how that was there and the difference in the culture toward soldiers. Well, the strategy behind it was if I don't fit in the United States of America, because everybody seems to be having a problem with me, I'm fine. It's just all those people behind me. They're either picking themselves up off the ground, they're crying, or they're yelling. So those people must be weird. So maybe if I go to a different country, I can leave all that behind, start afresh. So I went to Australia, but I had this manuscript. And the American publishers, the mainstreams, I got rejection slips saying, too graphic, Vietnam's a taboo subject. So I went to Australia, and I had a friend who had a printing press at a local newspaper. So I said, look, can we make a book? And he said, sure. He read it. He liked it. He said, yeah, we can do this. So I handmade the first 960 copies at the mm. newspaper. Then I went out, thumb in the air, um, going around Australia, selling the book, Permission to Kill. And uh, I got great reception from the Australians because there's 50-odd thousand Australian veterans of the Vietnam War, and they were having the same problems, combat mm-hmm. stress. And they were living in the bush, and they weren't merging, and they needed to talk about it. 
but they couldn't talk about it. One of the most frequent questions was, how can you talk about it? And I'm going, how can you not talk about it? Was it mm-hmm. not the most exciting time in your life? They'll go, yeah, it was exciting and dangerous. Just can't talk about it. Not to the normal people. So anyhow, I got great reception from the Vietnam veterans. And I got on the radio, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's radio, and talked nationwide there. And I couldn't sell the book to bookstores because it was too expensive. And um, so on the radio, they asked how they could people would get my book. And I said, well... I'm in the Sydney area for a couple of weeks with $10 on an envelope, Ryan Wizard, General Delivery, Sydney, Australia, New South Wales, zip code 2000. And then I went and told the post office lady, I might get a letter or two, but I'm Brian Wizard, so expect it. And they came back, and it was like 400 letters from people around Australia wanting my book. Money in the envelopes. I went, wow. You know? And a lot of the... Um, Envelopes had $10 plus the letter saying, if you ever in the neighborhood, swing by. We can put you up. You know, because I told them I was just hitchhiking around Australia selling my books. And so I'd knock on doors and say, did you write this letter? Holy cow, it's you. Get in here. Drink this. Smoke that. This is my sister. Cool. So I saw Australia <laughs> from the inside. <laughs> it was nice. And um, So I did Australia great was a, a rebirth. It was a rebirth, and it was acceptance, and it was a commercial success. So I said, well, if I can do this in Australia, you know, I should be able to go back to the United States. and Maybe they're ready for me now. So six years later, I came back to the United States with two editions as publishing history, right? Successful, mm-hmm. two editions. Mm-hmm. And um, I come back here with the vim and vigor to sell the books to the mainstream publishers. Now their excuse was the book market is flooded with Vietnam stories. We don't need another. I went, dang. I was too early and I was too late. Oh, well. And then I had to do what was really amazing. I actually defined the true enemy I had, which was the United States government, the architects of the Vietnam War, and the Veterans Administration. The architects of the Vietnam War, when asked the question, what do you do, with combat veterans that have seen too much combat and cannot merge with society? The answer was, don't worry about them. They'll either get incarcerated or commit suicide. And that was the wrong answer. I didn't like it. But it's what happened. And then the VA, um, the one in San Francisco, said that no one would get 100% disability for uh, PTSD unless they were a vegetable. So that was wrong, because I'm not a vegetable. You know, and um, it took a four-year fight with the VA. I whooped them. You know, they had an army of lawyers, and I whooped them all on my own because I couldn't have a lawyer. And the people who were even talking about what is PTSD, those getting compensated for it, I helped set the precedent for that. Because once somebody got 100% for combat stress, it became, you know, the norm. And that right there is, you know, good for me, feeling really good about that. I helped a lot of people. And I just want to say that the people that commit suicide, it's not the way to go. It's always better to eradicate the problem 
not yourself. You know, along the way, as you were fighting this battle, and it, it was a, a battle of persistence and documentation and waiting, 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 you had some good people who helped you along the way. And I think that that's still true today. If you can find a champion who will encourage you and walk with you on that journey, you are more likely to persist and stick with it. Would you agree with that? I would because I know some guys came back and they had super great family and community support and they actually just took the whole war experience, put it on the shelf because everybody helped them out and you know directed them into the good American dream. right? But I didn't have that. And a lot of people don't get that because, of course, the people you're talking to tell you, Brian, forget about it. The war's over. You lost. I go, what? 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 No, the war ain't over. I didn't lose, by the way. I won every battle except one in which there was a draw and the guy shot us down. We crashed. But we killed him first. So I didn't lose. And the war's not over because it appears to still be raging in my head as a lifestyle. And the people that helped me, they were great. In Australia, people helped me all over the place. You know, they just welcomed me into their house. And if you can just welcome a stranger into your house, you yourself are a nice person, proven right there. You know. So around here, now I live out in the wilderness. The only people I deal with are people who sell me stuff. And that's good. I like that. Jason? I had a question. I wanted to come full circle from where we... Um sort of started the conversation with your transition, more specifically okay. about um, your family and how they were able to um, either get to a place or maybe not get to a place to understand some of the struggles that you were dealing with as you were transitioning. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that for us and, and where, where um, after, and maybe this is after you came back from Australia, were you able to rekindle um, that relationship Yes, well, uh, first off, I just want to say the best therapy is writing either a story, short story, long story, tell your experience, you know, and maybe throw in some music. If you can, you know, work some music into your life, great therapy, you know, and that tells the story. And once you can tell the story to the people that around you that never understood exactly, you know, what's wrong with you, they never understood that I was on a smoke ship. I was a gunner. I was in constant danger beyond the call of duty, defining the front line from beyond. They didn't understand it, you know, because they couldn't see it. So I wrote the book. When I started being able to share the book with people, they went, oh, you did this? I went, did it. That's me. And then I showed them the movie. They went, oh, that's you? And I go, yep, that's me stealing the flags. You know, and that's me. Yeah, those are my medals. You know, those are my flight wings. You know, and they started to understand it. That's why you're the way you are. I go, ding, now you got it. Now you got it. Now you're starting to understand. And it was really good for them to have something to read, look at, and listen to. Then they they came around and started to understand what I was talking about. Because through reading, they got to live the experience. Like Linda said, you can't watch my DVD and not kind of get a little secondary combat stress going. It's it's very intense, and this this job and the age uh, that you were at the time seems to compound it. It's also interesting, though, that you were still very driven to 
make the most of yourself. I mean, it's very <laughs> commendable that you were keeping on trying and that you are open enough that when you did tell the story and people did listen, they could see it. You mentioned to me in a conversation about that if we could only put people around a campfire again, it would make the talking easier. Can you express a little bit about that? Well, that's what storytelling is. Mm -hmm. It started off long ago before the such thing as a book was invented. You tell the stories and the history by sitting around the campfire for entertainment purposes, and the elders would tell you the history of your tribe. Mm -hmm. And that's all I'm doing now. And the, uh, the truth of the matter is, knowledge is gained at the feet of the elderly. So, you know, I was a lot older than, I would say, my father after I came back from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And so finally when he read my book, he goes, oh, I see. So he learned from me because I was older than he was in experience of combat. And so sitting around and talking about it is great, but sitting around and reliving it over and over again in like group sessions, not necessarily that great. Mm -hmm. you know, because there's no, I don't see any production in it. But doing a commercial event or even just a personal, today with self-publishing, you can do a cathartic writing and telling of your story. You can write a song, you know, even if you just put the poem down and have somebody else put music to it. You're telling your story and trying to convey what you went through to other people so they can sit back and go, oh, I get it. And that's what we're looking for. That's what a VA, I had to get kind of hard on the VA, and when I found out they only give every claim seven minutes of attention, and I gave them a 250,000-word document, I had to condense it down to an 8.5 by 11 poster, which I sent you, mm -hmm. that they could understand. Okay, we're going on another short break, and we will be right back. Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Are you looking for something more in your life or business? More success? More stability? More happiness? It's all out there waiting for you, but it doesn't just happen. You've got to go get it. Make it happen with Michelle McCullough, where motivation and strategy intersect. Michelle is a serial entrepreneur, acclaimed speaker, and the WooHoo Radio Network's resident business and success strategist. Michelle has the smart strategies and experience to help you improve your life and take your business to the next level. You've got big dreams. You've got big vision. Now it's time for you to make it happen. Scott Kelly recently broke the record for the longest consecutive time spent in space with over 300 days and counting. Astronaut Kelly says he doesn't really experience the molly grubs or depression, but is fully aware of the dangers of being in space. In other words, 
He understands the gravity of the situation. Speaking of gravity, in space, your arms don't hang by your side like they do here on Earth. So astronaut Kelly says he tucks them inside his sleeping bag at night so they don't float in front of him. Hey, isn't it always night in space? He also says that he doesn't get the same satisfaction of laying down to sleep like people on Earth. At least there's no chance of Matutalipia. That's getting up on the wrong side of the bed. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're talking with Brian Wizard, Vietnam vet and artist extraordinaire at this point. Brian, you used your writing, uh, sculpture, art, and music as a tool to reinvent yourself. I think you made a very valid point earlier when you said people don't read as much anymore. And I think you're right. So I'd love to talk about your video, your DVD, and now you can download it straight from your website. Because I think just a, a view of something like that make will make a number of combat veterans feel very comfortable that you have been there, you understand it, and that it's a visual that's real. It's not a video game. So can you talk about the um, Vietnam movie that you shot called Then, Again, and Beyond that won the Indie New York Film Festival Award? Well, like I said, there I was in Vietnam taking photographs, shooting movies, keeping a journal. And I was going to write a book and make a movie, and nobody believed me. But now I have, like, heaps of books. And the writing of The Permission to Kill was cathartic, for me, boom, I got it down. Anybody got questions, read the book. And then I wrote two sequels to it, Back in the World, Permission to Live, that cover the next 30 years. But now, the DVD, for people who don't read, really makes it because it's got three parts to it. The first part is 20 minutes riding in the door of my helicopter, Pollution 4, laying smoke, and going on what we call the hunt, where we would go out and find the bad guys and take them on one-to-one, you know? I mean, I killed personally myself 40 people and hundreds with the help of other gunships in the Air Force. You know, and that's uh, something to come home with. You can't show it, though, can you? Mm-hmm. Except in the way you act. But the video will take you right there, and you'll see me shooting up stuff. And um, then it goes to 30 years later when I went back to Vietnam. You want to talk healing? I went back to Vietnam, and it was a healing experience for me to go back to the old battlegrounds and not have a battle to fight. Matter of fact, the Vietnamese people loved me. They loved me. They thanked me for being there before. They thanked me for coming back. You see that in the video. The second part is called mm-hmm. uh, Make Friends, Not War. You know, And I made a lot of good friends, and um, it was great not to have the war barking at my heels. And then the third part is when the Smithsonian got this Huey helicopter with a history of being a smoke ship, and they didn't know what a smoke ship was, so they typed smoke ship on the Internet and came up on my website and go, this guy knows. So they contacted me and asked me if I had any artifacts. And so I got to put my custom-painted flight helmet, which you see me wearing in the mm-hmm. uh, video, and my platoon scarf and my most famous photograph, on display at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum in Chantilly, Virginia. Well, after that, after I, after I donated that, I told the curator, I said, until you put a smoke generator on that Huey, you just got another slick mm. tube carrier. 
And he mm-hmm. said, where are we going to get one of those? And I said, hold that thought. I went out. <laughs> I tracked one down. I found one. I bought it. I shipped it. They installed it. Now if you go to National Air's uh, Space, Space Museum, Museum it's, it's there. You can see it. You can see what a smoke ship looked like, which is amazing. And that's what the video depicts. And it's got three music videos, which are also mm-hmm. cathartic, in the sense mm-hmm. that I also tell three different stories in music. Well, again, art, uh, you know, expression. Yeah. I mean, that's why you call yourself an expressive artist. But you well, pretty I much also self went, I went to healed. college. I went to a school called the School of Expressive Arts. Okay. So and it, was, it was a great school. Here's the, the premise of the school. Self-exploration through art. Mm-hmm. They don't have schools like that anymore. They closed it down because the um, president of the university, Sonoma State University, uh, said it was, uh, well, that seemed like it was good for the soul. And the guy who started the school, Mac, he said, yes, it is good for the soul. So they shut it down because there was no money in being good for the soul. They wanted to put out the service people who paid taxes. So that school was put down, but it was right there at the right time for me because self-exploration through art or self-exploration through mechanics or self-exploration through whatever, you know, it is a great way to go because you need to explore yourself and redefine yourself in the new world back here and take all the experience of combat, all those great lessons, the commitment, the discipline, Use it in today's world doing something that has nothing to do with combat. You take all that situational awareness and experience and you transfer it into here and now doing what you do. And that will that'll pull you through. And you have it to pull does. yourself through. And, and anybody, nobody else can pull you through. Go well, ahead. you know, it is interesting that those sorts of therapies are being used now more because it is healing. I want you to go back to your search for some of your battle buddies, and what happened 47 years later, the crack of camaraderie video? Uh, that is a great video because, okay, so I got books and DVDs. So some people with interest, um, they can find me. I'm on the Internet. Just type in Brian Wizard. Boom, there I am. And BrianWizard.com, everybody. Yeah, B-R-I-A-N-W-I-Z-A-R-D.com. But this guy in Southern California, Van, he was a crew chief, crew chief of the smoke ship in the company next to mine. And on the day I arrived in Vietnam, he was busy crashing in that helicopter. Mm. And uh, he found my stuff, and he bought my book and DVD. He loved it. And then this guy, Scotty Henderson, who was the first crew chief of Pollution 4, that's the name of my smoke ship, Pollution 4, just as I was leaving, just as I was coming in, he was leaving. And I heard about him. My mentor, Harvey, kept saying, ah, Scotty, he was the best. He was the greatest. And um, he bought my book and DVD. And Ben and Scotty emailing back and forth, and they told the same story about how they took a slow boat to war, and it broke down, and they had to spend a month in the Philippines. And went, you guys must know each other. So I sent them each a picture of each other. And they go, yeah. And they each sent me back the very same photograph on a Saturday night, Subic Bay, they got in a little dust-up with some Navy boys, stole their hats. They were sitting there drinking beer, wearing sailor's hats. And that was great. Turns out that Ben in Southern California was a keynote speaker at the commemoration of the 50th 
anniversary of the Vietnam War in Nampa, Idaho, I was invited to sign books and movies. We had to get Scotty up. We had to get him up there. I offered to pay his way and put him up in the hotel and everything, but no, no, I'll get there. So he showed up on his own, and we had a great weekend reunion. These two guys hadn't seen each other for 48 years, and I've been looking for Scotty for 47. Now, here's the important part. If you know people from the combat you were in, and there's things you'd like to talk about with them because they know what you went through, do it now. Because nine weeks after that, Scotty died massive heart attack. So that was amazing. And the crack of uh, camaraderie, which is, go to my website, there's the word videos, you click that, boom. There it right is, right on top there. And it's just interesting to see how people can come together, even 48 years later, and still share stories and talk about it in a way that they're not talking to strangers. We all knew what we were talking about, what the other people were talking about. And it was good. That was good therapy right there. You know, I, I when you wrote that in your book, um, you, you I'm glad you mentioned that people should meet up with their battle buddies if they possibly could because it does bring the common experience together. You wrote after um, Scotty had died just a mere nine, ten weeks after your reunion, the death still sits but a threshold away. And that's the the flip side of you know, live each day to the fullest, which you are doing now. So talk about where you are now and um, how, how you live. And you clearly are at comfort level with talking about your experience and just talking about it with others is helping numerous other current veterans at this point. I can promise you that. Well, not only the veterans, but their families. Like other right. veterans I was in combat with, I would go and meet with them, you know, because I had addresses, and I'd call them up. Hey, you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. You know, like Doug, he was the 50 caliber gunner, you know. Mm-hmm. I kept in touch with him all the way up until last year because he died just a couple weeks after Scotty. You know? oh. So we're, dro- we're dropping like flies, you know. My only goal now, you know, the bucket list, I've done all this work, and I, you know, once I wrote Permission to Kill, I learned how to write. I kind of got addicted. I've got like a dozen novels later, and they're great stories. I got four, no, five award winners, but nobody knows about it because I don't play well with others like bookstores who have a tendency to want 55% of the price, and they do nothing. So I don't sell the bookstores. You have to go to brianwizard.com. But I can't go to brianwizard.com and buy all my own stuff and call it commercial success. That's for you, the radio listeners. Go to my website. I mean, e-books, I got e-books, they're cheap. I got paperbacks, you know, if you want to pay the postage. A DVD, you can have the hard copy or you can just download it. It's a big file, but you got high-speed internet, it's no big deal. And that's my bucket list. I'd love to have some commercial success to take me out of this $360,000 debt that this therapy costs. Therapy ain't cheap. Yep. No, it's not. And I think it's it's... It's important to you, obviously, for commercial success, but it's also important that these stories are told and shared and carried on because Vietnam is still not spoken about as openly as other wars. We are still losing more of our Vietnam vets to suicide and mental illness than we have lost that are, whose names are on the wall. And 
when you share these stories and you show the exuberance that you still show today, I can still hear the 18, 19 year old in your voice. You are, and you're touching base with all your friends. It is making a big difference in their lives. We have about a minute left. Would you like to share anything else with our listeners? I just want to say, um, you know, to everybody that went to any war, welcome home. Thanks for serving and keep the peace. Keeping the peace is not always so easy, is it, as you go through the day-to-day? But as you're writing, so you're encouraging writing, expression of any sort, videos, pictures, talking with others, even campfires. Anything else that you would add to that list? Oh, uh, just, you know, make it fun. Take the negative energy of combat and turn it into a positive experience. When you can show somebody something... That's positive, like, hey, check this song out I wrote. And you can play them a song, or you can just give them a poem, or just a paragraph. You know, at least you're sharing it. Make it a positive thing. Turn it around from negative to positive. Because positive is the way you want to live. I live out in the wilderness, and all the animals love me, because I'm the most positive human they've ever met. (laughs) We should mention that Brian lives on the top peak in Oregon. And it's a beautiful place, and it is isolated. But, you know, Brian, thank you for sharing your story with us today. I encourage everyone to go to brianwizard.com. That's B-R-I-A-N, wizard, W-I-Z-A-R-D.com. Everything is extremely affordable and available for download. And a fast, very rewarding read or view on the DVDs. This is important that we not forget this. Brian, thank you for being with us today. And we'll see you next week. You're welcome. Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com. And in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance 